Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arseblog Arsecast right here on Arseblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. It's an interlull, which I'm sure you're very much aware of, and I apologize for reminding you of that fact, but it is it is a fact. There's nothing we can do about it. European teams are playing in the European Nations League thing which I don't still understand, despite... Well, I was going to say despite my best efforts at trying to figure it all out, but I've made absolutely no effort whatsoever to try and understand what the European Nations Cup is about. I know we spoke about this on the Arscast Extra a couple of weeks ago when I was in Spain, and James tried to explain the format to me, but all I heard was... And to be brutally honest, I'm not that interested to try and figure it all out. You know, I think you can, as a human being, you can learn things, even if they're difficult. But I think it requires effort, uh, just the tiniest, littlest bit of application of your mind. And I'm not prepared to do that with the European Nations Cup, whatever it is. It's the European Nations League. That's I know that much. So I will continue on in wonderful, blissful ignorance. I did see Jurgen Klopp say it was like the, the stupidest tournament that anybody's ever invented, ever. Clearly, he hasn't been paying attention to the new brand of reality TV shows, but I think maybe, maybe he was just talking about football. There is no Arsenal, of course, until not next weekend. If you had your hopes set on Arsenal coming back next Saturday or Sunday, your weekend would be once again infused with the very essence of Arsenal. I'm sorry, I've got bad news for you again, because we're not playing until Monday night. One of those Monday night games. I really don't like the Monday night games. So our interlull is longer than everybody else's interlull apart from Leicester. But then who cares about Leicester? Apart from, like, Gary Lineker... Alan Smith, he's a former Leicester man, so we can forgive him, his association with Leicester. But who else? Leicester fans, of course. But we're not here to to worry about their trials or tribulations when we've got enough of our own going on. I've got enough going on here. I've got a completely destructive puppy. She's gone crazy this evening. I'm trying to record here. She's already torn all the stuffing out of her bed. And then... Her football, she's got football that she plays with. She's quite a good footballer, you know, German. So she's got some skills. The football that she's been carrying around with her for, I don't know, months now, she decided like she'd never seen it before and went absolutely berserk 
barking at it like it was the first time she'd ever seen it. But then this happened the other day as well. I was taking her out for a walk and all of a sudden she stopped dead in her tracks. All her hackles went up. There was a little bit of a low growl and then the barking began. And if you've ever heard a German shepherd bark, you will know that they are, they're barky dogs. And what caused this barking? What terrifying new and unusual thing was she faced with that caused this reaction? A leaf. A leaf was blowing down the road towards her, and this was apparently the scariest thing of all time. It would be like me walking into my house to discover a gigantic owl dressed as a clown in my sitting room. That would be about the scariest thing I could think of. And that's what it was like with her. So there's something weird going on in her mind at the moment. And uh, poor old Archer is standing around going, why, why did you do this? Was I, was I not a good boy? Was I not good enough for you? And he's a very sensitive dog, Archer. So every time she does something wrong, he tries to get as far away from her as possible so he doesn't get any of the blame. And uh, at the moment, he's, he's getting far away from her quite often indeed. So while I'm up here recording, anything could be happening downstairs. I'm kind of afraid to go down, but uh, the show must go on. And we do have Arsenal stuff for you on this Arsenal podcast. Surprise, surprise. In a couple of moments, we're going to talk stats. A little bit later on, Arsenal women and the challenges facing women's football in general and how successful we are, Arsenal are, as a a club in the women's game. Tim Stillman will be along a bit later on to talk about that. But this week, there has been a lot of talk on Twitter about expected goals and Arsenal's uh, ranking in terms of where we are in the expected goals table, in terms of how many goals we've scored versus how many goals we're expected to score. So with me right now to discuss all that and to try and cut through some of the nonsense and waffle and uh, perhaps overly stat stuff that goes with all that. Delighted to welcome to the show Tim from 7am Kickoff, who many of you know used to do the By the Numbers piece on Arsbog News. He's still blogging at 7amkickoff.com. Tim, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I am okay. I'm okay. I wanted to talk to you because I've been watching this week on Twitter interesting discussions. Sometimes they're not necessarily discussions. Uh, People seem to have uh, some quite fixed ideas about certain things, particularly when it comes to stats. But we're talking, uh, or I'm talking, about expected goals, and Arsenal are ahead of where they're expected to be, to put it a, a, a put it that way, uh, in terms of the chances they've created based on the, the number of goals they score. But just for the uninitiated, I'm sure everybody's heard of expected goals at this point, but what is a really simple explanation for expected goals? Um shot percentage. <laughs> so, so if you, uh, in the olden days, we used to just... We, we, we took a look at all the stats that, of all the shots and we said, hey, look, basically everybody scores at about a 10% rate. So then, you know, shots, 10% of all shots go in. So right. then as we kind of looked in a little bit closer into the data, we noticed that shots from certain positions had higher percentages of, cha- of scoring. And they started to put together these models. And that's what turned into expected goals. Expected goals is not simply just shot positions anymore. There's a lot of other data that goes into it, such as how many defenders are in between the shooter and the and the goal, how many, you know, whether it's a one-on-one with the goalkeeper, for example, whether it's a big chance, what the angle of the shot is, the distance from, from the goal to the, to um, to the shooter. So all of those factors now go into this formula. But in its essence, each shot is assigned a percentage chance 
based on all of the shots that came before from that particular spot with those particular conditions. So the example from the game against Fulham this weekend is Lacazette's second goal. The ball rolled across him. He didn't even take a touch. His first touch was to shoot it off the volley from about 20-something yards out, goes into into the lower corner, beautiful shot, Absolutely wonderful to watch goal, but it only had a 2% chance. It was only assigned a 0.02 expected goals, about a 2% chance. Right. And that's pretty normal. That's pretty normal for a shot from outside the box is 2 to 3%. Yeah. So what, for example, then would the, I'm curious, it just occurred to me before we move on, the Aaron Ramsey chance uh, that, that capped off that amazing move with that amazing goal against Fulham. It, it was an incredible move from back to front, but do does expected goals take into account the 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 difficulty of the finish in a way like uh you know when they uh, assign a, a higher score to a mark in uh diving you know high board diving or figure skating that kind of thing you know Ramsey is quite close to the goal but in order to make it go in he has to pull off something a little bit special rather than just tap it into an empty net precisely that's that's exactly what it does and so that particular shot had a point 1.12 now I'm using a specific website for this data. This is not my uh, expected goals number. And that number that I just quoted could vary from from formula to formula because not everybody Mm. uses the same expected goals formula. But the one site that I use um, assigned that a 0.12, which is about a 12% chance. So, But you're exactly right in the theory that you're explaining, which is if I had the ball from 15 yards – my expected goals chance is going to be a lot lower than if I hit the ball with my dominant foot, Mm. you know, from the same position, same thing with a back heel shot. I mean, the cross was absolutely perfect, but he's, I mean, it was the right type of cross to help score a goal, but he still had to provide something extra special on top of that. So a lot of the, a lot of the frustration with expected goals is that they see or they hear me say something like, well, that was a point one, two, and they go, well, yeah, but he scored a goal. Mm-hmm. The other way to look at that is to say, yeah, but he scored a goal in a very unlikely position. So that's actually really fun to watch. It's cool. It's, it's just telling you that he scored an unusual goal, just like Lacazette's goal from outside the 18 yard box. It just means that they scored unusual goals. It doesn't mean that they're, because the expected goals was low, that they're crap players or something like that. It just sure. just means that they scored an unusual goal. That's it's actually kind of showing us a cool data point there. Yeah, I, I like the the idea that there are various xG models. Uh, I don't want to go into the nuts and bolts of it, but I wonder is it going to be like Betamax versus VHS? At some point, one will become uh, the, the standard. But no, I think it's it is interesting, isn't it? Because it, it can make you appreciate. Uh, a goal like Ramsey's, which you can appreciate, of course, on a very aesthetic level because it's an amazing piece of football to watch from start to finish. But when you also look at it from the data side of things, that the difficulty of the chance to finish off what was that incredible move, you know, if you're that way inclined, I'm, that's, that sounds wrong. But if perhaps you're, I think people are, 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 are 
different in the way that they look at things. Like you're clearly somebody who looks at numbers and statistics in a very different way than I do because it's not really my thing. You know, maths and numbers and formulas and shit. I, I can I get it and I can appreciate it, but you know, there are other people who just won't have any time for that at all. But you know, if you can combine those things, it just adds to football rather than um, this idea that somehow stats or expected goals are are in some way damaging football well there's a there is a tendency sometimes for stats people to try to bludgeon you with stats <laughs> and those people are annoying and i have been i have done that and i have been that annoying guy uh sometimes with my column on 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 our blog <laughs> news i would i would be slightly annoying with some of my data um and yes so that is and in fact there's a whole website called stats bomb which was which is sort of that's the phrase that people would use. Mm. They would sort of come in and carpet bomb you with stats and try to blow away your argument with stats. So that's a stats bomb. Um, and and yes, people do that, and it is annoying. And I have done it. <laughs> um, uh, but I would just I would just say that you know most of the stats people nowadays are a lot more cautious about that kind of stuff. We're not trying to come in and and destroy your argument by saying, oh yeah, well look, Arsenal are plus nine expected goals. So therefore they're going to, you know, drop to 10th place. And, you know, most of us aren't doing that because we're much more reasonable approach to these kinds of things and like to see the stats as something that enriches the game, as you're saying. Yeah, I think it does. You know, uh, I, I often cite the idea uh, or the, uh, the player ratings as something for me anyway, that has uh, been, enhanced by the use of stats and these are basic stats that we get from a game the opta stats in terms of pass completion and tackles and defensive actions attacking actions all those kind of things because your eyes can tell you one thing but your eyes can deceive you sometimes as well where you think a player's had a terrible game he's given the ball away a lot and instead what he's done is he's given the ball away stupidly twice or three times but the rest of his passing has been fine but you're sort of prejudiced a bit by the the terrible things that you've seen so i think there's there's a real use um, for anybody who's serious about um, watching the game or, or talking about the game, writing about the game anyway, certainly uh, to use stats because they are so readily available now. So you talk about Arsenal having an expected goals of plus nine, right? So just to, again, to be to be very simplistic about this, based on the chances that Arsenal have created so far this season, all the shooting opportunities, they've all been given a, a, a an XG, a percentage, what did you call it again? A percentage number? Uh, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, it's a, yeah. So that That's adds correct. up and you are expected, based on that number, to score X amount of goals, whereas Arsenal have actually scored nine more goals than expected goals. So, is this a flaw in expected goals? Are Arsenal just overperforming? What happens here? What should we What should we read into this? Well, the first thing I would suggest is that we think of this not as overperforming, but rather or luck. That's a lot of people you will mis mislabel this as luck. It's actually just variance. So you are always going to have teams that score more goals than are expected and score fewer goals than are expected. It, that is. Total normal variance, and especially in the beginning of a season. So what are we, seven games in, eight games in? Mm. And at the very beginning, it's like if you go up to a blackjack table and you throw down $10 and you win the first three hands, you are your variance is super high at that point. If you sit there at that table for 38 hands, mm. you're going to have a much more, um, a much more even end of season <laughs> 
take on the number of on the on on the expected winnings from that. Same thing with the with the football with football. The first six to seven games of any season are always crazy variants, and you can see this in the um, in uh, the position of the the table position of the of the teams. So table position will vary wildly in the first six games because the um, because the the points that they're gathering are are you know, up and down, you lose one out of six games and it's a big deal. You lose one out of 38. It's not so big. Yeah. So, so that's, that's what's happening. I would suggest right now um, we've scored a couple of extra goals that maybe we wouldn't have scored in the last few years. Um, and there can be some variance in those, in those types of shots. And that's all that we're seeing. Uh, there's a lot of worry. And I think there's, I think some people are probably stats bombing a lot of Arsenal fans right now <laughs> with the idea that, we're going to revert to the mean or in other words, we're going to start to drop. We're not going to score as many goals as, as we are off the shots that we're scoring. Right. And that probably will happen. It doesn't necessarily have to happen there. I've seen every season, every single season, even Leicester, even, um, even Manchester city last season overperformed quote unquote, overperformed expected goals by 15 goals. Uh, Chelsea overperformed expected goals the season prior by 20 goals. (laughs) So, Every season, and Leicester the season before that, you know, with their defense by 10 goals. Every season you have teams that, and in fact, the team that wins the league typically performs better than expected goals. The point of expected goals is to think of it as the average. Mm. So, of course, the best teams are going to overperform in because that's what they do, you know. They don't, sure. they they are better than the average. That's how you win the league. You're better than average. So, hopefully, Arsenal continue to overperform. Now, how much they're going to overperform, I don't know. Mm. Uh, but at this point, and the reason I say I don't know is because at this point we have way too much variance. It's just too the sample size is too small. However, you want to say it, it's just there's just not been enough games to actually say well, this is how Arsenal play football now. Mm. I mean, it's it's possibly a positive sign that the attacking quality in the team when you've got two 50 million pound strikers who are playing uh, and scoring pretty regularly um that might be a factor in that whereas if you're playing for example uh julio baptista up front or a Marouane Shamak up front. Your 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 ability to get above the average is much more difficult when you're playing with average players. But when you've got some really good players, above average players, might it not hold true that that enhances your uh, ability to score goals? 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Lionel Messi always overperforms expected goals. Mm. End of story. Good players all almost always overperform expected goals. So um, that's not always true. So somebody's going to quote me on that and then I'm going to get in trouble. But uh, the, it is t- it is typically true that the good players over uh, overperform. Lacazette and uh, um, Obama Yang are both overperforming, but only by a tiny amount. It's actually kind of funny to see the individual players. Currently, their expected goals, and again, this is off this one site that I use, um, understat.com, their current expected goals are about 2.3 for Lacazette and 2.2 for Ob- for Aubameyang, and they've scored four goals so each. So there's a little bit of that. I mean, but you're only talking about two goals for each of those players. And again, you're looking at the first, you know, less than ten games. It's mm. it's uh, um it's it's completely normal to see numbers like that. 
So when it comes to individuals within this Arsenal team this season, and you're somebody uh, who, who takes a good look at this and a look at how players are performing, who's interesting from a statistical point of view? Because we can look at certain players and think, you know, they've come in and done very well and, and we're enthused by their performances and their energy and everything else. But um, maybe perhaps somebody that's flying under the radar or maybe some established players doing some things differently. What have you noticed? The um, big the big numbers are for Lock or for uh, Danny Welbeck and and Alex Awobi actually. So one thing I've been writing on my blog is that I really want to see these two players start, and the reason for that is because of a thing called expected goal chain. This is going to get a little wonky, but I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. Which is how the player how many touch whether the player had a touch in in an expected goal event. So. And in other words, did Awobi, you know how you've seen this pass from Awobi now four or five times in this yeah. this season where he's charging at the defenders. He passes it off to somebody who made an overlap or an underlap. And then that person makes the cross that makes the shot. Right. So it's their, contribution, expecting- their contribution to a move uh, which Correct. results in a, a, a chance. Correct. Right. And per, per 90, Danny Welbeck is the highest in our team. 1.445. So in other words, if he plays 90 minutes, Arsenal get about 1.45 expected goals. That's incredibly high. Mm. Um, and Wobi has the same, uh, a similarly high number of one. And so, and I think we saw that. We've seen that every time that they've come on, they've really changed the game in terms of Arsenal's attack. Um, and we saw them this weekend against Fulham. Now, again, this is a variance thing. You could see this as a very small sample size, but I would like to see those players play because they are having a positive impact on the underlying stats that we probably don't see very often. So, um, so I was really high on those two, those two, those two dudes prior to the Fulham match, which right. they proved to be really well. They they played really well in that game. They certainly did. I mean, I think uh, Welbeck and Iwobi are are pushing, and maybe this is uh, this is something I'm sure that Unai Emery is looking at. You know, if he is that kind of a manager who looks at every possible piece of information and data available to him, I'm sure he is absolutely looking at things like that and the contributions that the players are, are making. And you know, it all ties up, doesn't it, into this. Uh, competitive environment that he seems at this early stage of the season to be to be um, fostering within the squad in the sense that there are very few players you could look at very few players or established first team players who, who who don't necessarily feel involved at this point. The only one I can think of is maybe Mohamed El Neni, who Emery doesn't yeah. seem to like that much or doesn't seem to fancy that much. He hasn't played him in the Premier League, I don't think. And uh, I think he's only made two appearances, three appearances perhaps this season in, in in the cup games. So everyone else, though, is being given a chance in the first team and being given a chance to stake their claim. And when Welbeck and Iwobi play well, as they did against Carabag in the Europa League, he's bringing them back in and playing them in the Premier League away from home against Fulham just, you know, almost 48 hours later because of the late arrival back and the the early kickoff um, on Sunday. Yeah, he that that was was a really incredibly uh, bold move, I think, to bench. I I don't know if bench is the correct word, but to to play um, Mkhitaryan. And on all of these players, Mkhitaryan, Welbeck, and Iwobi all have very high expected goals chain per 90 so they're the highest three in the in the league Mm. or in the team and so that's 
And so that's was it wasn't a surprise to me to see them start on Sunday, except for that I thought it was kind of brave of Emory to do that because the traditional people who would have high numbers in those categories are guys like Ozil, mm-hmm. and he's he's not he's not coddling Ozil anymore. So as you point out, he's just picking the guys based on numbers and the numbers that they get are way more advanced than the stuff that I'm looking at. Yes. So they have, they have, (laughs) they have an entire team that they're paying millions of pounds to produce very detailed analytics that we are not anywhere close to. Yeah. So, so just he, if he has anything, he has more data than we do. Right. Maybe I need to get him to write a column for the website. He's got access to all this, <laughs> <laughs> all this good stuff. Hey, he's on Twitter. You never know if he's still it's on true. Twitter. <laughs> I don't know how long that will last. He's uh, he's enjoying the good times at the moment. What about the uh, the strikers? I think you noticed something about Obama Yang as well. Yeah. So both. So Lacazette. Well, one thing that's interesting about the expected goals number is I quoted a two percent for that goal that he scored. Over his career, he's actually a 9% from outside the box, which is very high. That's that's a Coutinho high. Right. <laughs> so, um that's a that, that means that means he should be taking more shots from outside the box. And I think that in general Emery, I know that Arsene Wenger, one of the things I, I I'm not ever going to speak badly about Arsene Wenger. Arsene Wenger overperformed with the teams that he had for a long time, finishing top 4, you know, all those years. At the eight-two year, when mm. finishing top four in that season was some kind of a miracle, <laughs> and getting that getting that out of those players when everything went awry like that was was he was a fantastic manager, and I'll always I'll always love Arsene Wenger. Um, but but one characteristic of his team was that it, he specifically told them not to shoot from outside the box, and the reason for that is statistics. Like it's a three percent chance, it's a two percent chance. Mm. Do you want to waste that chance? Or do you want to try to make a pass, an extra pass into the box and get a 10 or a 15 or a 20% chance? So Wenger was playing the odds. And if you have average players playing the odds is probably the best way to do the best, the best strategy. Yeah. Just like blackjack, you know, you're going to play the odds. So, but with Lacazette at almost 10% over his career, you might want to let him go, go ahead and have some shots from outside the box. And that's converting into higher than normal, you know, goals per expected goals for him. Mm. But one thing that's curious is that he also has Obama Yang shooting from outside the box. And Obama Yang has two goals from outside the 18-yard box this season for Arsenal, one in the Europa League and one in the Premier League. And um, when he played for Borussia Dortmund, he had three since 2013. <laughs> so right. so and and just the total number of shots he's already he's already eclipsed the number of shots this season um that he had last season for Borussia Dortmund so he is being told to fire from outside the box we saw the goal that was just on the edge of the line for um against Fulham mm. which was also a low percentage shot but um but those kinds of things i think he's being encouraged to shoot from outside the box and i think it's great i think it's 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 exciting for the fans um and and it beats expected goals, which is always fun to watch. <laughs> All right. Well, look, we will uh, we'll keep an eye on this, and we'll catch up with you again a bit later in the season as the um, the variance perhaps uh, becomes more of the average, and we'll see where we are and whether we can keep this up. But uh, you know, people, if you don't read Tim's blog, please do. It's seven a.m. Kickoff dot com. It's uh, fantastic stuff, uh, and we'll catch up again soon. Tim, thanks a million. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Talk to you later. 
Tim is on Twitter at 7am kickoff. The blog is 7amkickoff.com. So if you're not reading it already, please do add it to your bookmarks. I assume that's what people still use, isn't it? I guess that's what people do. They just, uh, you know, they open up Netscape and then they, they do control D and it makes a bookmark. And then when you want to find a website again, it's like a handy way to find websites. That's what, that's what we do, right? Right. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Okay, it is a double dose of Tim on this week's Arsecast. We have our uh, Arsenal women correspondent from Arsbog News, Tim Stillman, with us to discuss Arsenal women, the history of the club, the success that they've had down the years, and some of the challenges faced by women's football in general. Hi, Tim. Hello there. I want to get a little bit of the history, or if you could give us a little bit of the history about Mm. the Arsenal women, founded as Arsenal Ladies back in 1987. Not one of the... Uh, the very first teams, but certainly one of the first big Premier League teams to to set up a, a, a women's team and to really take it seriously. Yeah, absolutely. It, it started life very humbly. So um, it actually was an arm of Arsenal in the community um, where Vic Akers was working at the time. Um, and Vic, Vic didn't necessarily completely set it up by himself, but I mean, he might as well have for the work that he put into it. He took it very, very seriously from the beginning. Um, and yeah, it was, it was an arm of Arsenal in the community, a bit like, um, so Vic took over from a guy whose name I can't remember, but whose job Mm. it was to look after the celebrity and ex-professionals 11. Um, and, and so Vic took that over and the women's team um, kind of almost came out almost as like, yeah, I mean, it was a community idea, effectively. Um, I don't want to say a novelty yeah. um, because I think that that's that's misrepresenting what Arsenal were actually doing. But it was it was a, oh, we should do this. This is a good thing to do for the community. So for for years, really, that's what it was. And obviously nobody was paid or anything like that. Nobody was paid to run it. Nobody was paid to play in it. It was just, I mean, it ran for the first few years, yeah, almost like the celebrity and ex-professionals team they just they played when they could and they kind of got into local leagues Mm. um eventually vic came out of the arsenal in the community department when george graham was appointed and um george graham wanted him as part of the football staff so vic said and that's when he became kit man effectively so Vic said, yes, but I want to stay involved with the ladies team and I still want to to run it and manage it. So that's when effectively it came out of Arsenal in the community and it kind of became a concern in its own right. 
Um, but still, for many, many years, um, you know, right up until this century, really, yeah. um, nobody was paid or anything like that. Vic used to do really kind of um, inventive things. He'd get some of the players' work at the club. So I think Alex Scott posted on her Twitter really recently when she first got into the team. There's a picture of her with Ian Wright because she was working in the laundry um, with a couple of the other girls. And some of them had jobs in the box office. Wow. Some of them had like admin jobs at the training ground. Right up until um, 2014, Emma Byrne uh, worked at London Colney in an administrative position um, before the professionalisation of the club. So he, he had all these kind of... Um, kind of inventive ways of keeping them on the payroll um, through other means. Um, right. And, and yeah, the, you know, in the early 90s, they had a bit of a rivalry with Doncaster Bells, who are older, more established, and who were the premium force um, in English women's football. But then in the kind of early to mid-90s, Arsenal really start to take over, and you really start to see um, the trophies roll in and, and the dominance start. Yeah, I mean, they are, uh, people might not realise it, but the most successful women's team in English football are in the UK. Mm-hmm. The amount of honours and championships and titles and trophies that they've won is quite incredible. Yeah, it is. And um, it's it's funny, I always... Um, so, so when people kind of ask me why they haven't won the league for six years, for example, and they should have um, by now, I think, I, I always kind of compare them to Manchester United if you're looking for... Uh, an analogous team in mm. the men's game in terms of they've got that that history, that dominance. They haven't won the league for a few years when with their resources they probably should have, um, but they're still winning trophies. They've, they've still won quite a few cups over the last few years, but at Arsenal, that, you know, that, that doesn't really, it kind of keeps people just about happy, but not, you know, the players will tell you they're, they're not hugely satisfied with the fact that, you know, they won the League Cup last year, the FA Cup, like the year before that, like they're not, they think they should be doing better. The expectations and the bar is higher. Mm. Um, so, yeah, yeah. And, and they're, you know, they're spending plenty of money. The wage bill is high. They're spending um, on resources and things like that. They're, they're not the poor relations to Chelsea and Man City, even though Chelsea and Man City have clearly really started to pump money in in the last couple of years. Arsenal are, put, uh, Arsenal are matching them, if not outspending them um, in that regard. So that, that's why I kind of create that analogy with, with Manchester United. And, that, and this is also why, even though they haven't won the league for a couple of years, they can still go out and buy someone like, uh, or, or sorry, they don't really buy the players. There's not many transfer fees, but they get someone like uh, Vivian Medema from Bayern Munich, who has to be one of the top three strikers in the world because, uh, and, Heather, and someone like Heather O'Reilly, because mm. Arsenal is, is like a brand um, for women's players, it's it's a huge draw for them, and players still turn down Chelsea and Manchester City for Arsenal. Yeah, I mean, some of the most famous women's players uh, have either been at Arsenal or come through Arsenal or played for Arsenal mm-hmm. at some point. Uh, you mentioned Heather O'Reilly; obviously, she's American and and a big star. Um, what are the what are the challenges for? Arsenal, and not just for Arsenal, I suppose, any club like Man City, like Chelsea, that is taking women's football seriously and putting mm. money into it and creating these teams and creating facilities and, and everything that goes on around a team, you know, there's, there is marketing and there is match days mm. and the, there's all these things. But the challenge of getting people, A, aware 
or mm. and be interested or maybe be in or a interested and be aware i'm not quite sure uh, how it works in mm. a way it it is a bit of a challenge isn't it because there is a perception that you know it's women's football and some people would say that to you uh, as a sort of pejorative so it is mm. it is something that they i guess all clubs would have some difficulty with in a way yeah exactly it's it's kind of um, analogous to a non-league club um really in that respect in that what you're competing with now is ubiquitous premier league and champions league yeah. football and the, the the biggest barrier that they have really i, I honestly think it, it's the best value around um you know arsenal are playing chelsea on sunday it's like six pounds a ticket and a ticket to a league two game is over 25 is you know around 25 quid yeah. nowadays and it's it's far 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 better value than that um but the the problem it's got is time um you know top level football is so accessible and and, and it's everywhere now that people i think for better or worse just don't have the time to follow another team another league um so i i think if people watched it and followed it um, I know this is a, a bit glib and a bit of a cliche. They'd be uh, particularly, you know, you watch a game like Arsenal-Chelsea on Sunday, the quality will be very, very high. And um, I think people would be surprised by it, particularly in the last few years. All the clubs in the WSL are professional now. They train all week. Um, this is their job now. So, um, and, and, and Arsenal, that's been the case for the last kind of three or four years. How, um, how, how much would you say the standard has improved? Since the move to professionalisation, not just at Arsenal, but in women's football in general? So it, it has improved markedly. Um, they've all got strength and conditioning coaches now. Arsenal didn't have a goalkeeper coach until three, four years ago. Um, I mean, that, that tells you something. That Arsenal, you know, four years ago, were training twice a week. Um, they, had, they didn't have a goalkeeper's coach. They didn't have strength and conditioning coaches. Um, the Arsenal assistant manager now used to be uh, Joe Montemoro's video uh, analyst, um, but he wants to put such an emphasis on video analysis that he's appointed this guy as his assistant manager, which again tells you it's quite a nascent stage in terms of analytics and, and things like that. And Opta mm. have only just started doing stats. But yes, the the um, the the the, the, the level has gone up. The, the problem, um, I think, is now that the women's game it's the kind of about five years ago, it hit a real sweet spot where all of the teams were quite closely matched and everyone could beat everyone. And you had, um, I think in 2013, four teams could win the league on the final day. Mm. That doesn't happen now because with professionalism, there's a much bigger emphasis on who's got the money. So you've seen clubs like Sunderland have fallen away. Notts County have fallen away. Donny Bells have fallen away because most we're still at the stage now where most of the women's teams are funded by the men's teams and Notts County and Sunderland and yeah. Doncaster Rovers don't have the budgets. Arsenal, Chelsea, Man City, they all still make a loss on their women's team. It's just it's chumps change um, to them to make to, you know, to lose seven hundred thousand pounds. Yeah, is nothing. It's a drop in the ocean. So there's there's still some work to do there. So it's, so what you've got now is quite an unequal league. Um, again, where Arsenal, Chelsea and Man City are, are quite a long way ahead of everyone. And you might have seen if you've been following the scores this season, you know, yeah. Arsenal beat Yeovil 7-0. They played Lewis, who are in the division below, and beat them 9-0. Um, and, and that's kind of 
creeping back in a bit because you've got those teams with the big budgets separating themselves. And that's why it's starting to look a bit more like the men's game. And in recent years, teams like Bayern Munich, Barcelona, Juventus are winning the leagues in their countries. They never used to. But because they've got the big budgets with professionalization, they, they can throw a lot more money at it. So the level has really gone up. But the level of competitiveness, I'd say, has gone down. Right. That's a challenge as well, isn't it? When you're trying to get people interested in exciting games of football. I mean, it's great if you're an Arsenal fan and you see your team win 7-0. But if you're there for something a bit more than that or something a bit more competitive, that is is going to be an issue for the game to sort out. I mean, do you see any way that they can sort that out? Or is Um, is it a case that perhaps more Premier League teams will uh, launch women's teams. I mean, Manchester United famously did not have a women's team until uh, this season, yeah. maybe. And yeah. they've, you know, they've, they've set something up. So is it a case that that's going to be the way it'll go? And some of these smaller clubs will inevitably not fall by the wayside, but end up playing at a lower level? Yeah, I think so. I, I think, you know, we, we hit a bit of a tipping point about three or four years ago. That, so there used to be a rule when they set the WSL up that you are, there was a wage cap of £20,000 a year and you were allowed to have three players over that wage cap. Um, and and that made for quite an equal league. And what it meant was, you know, Arsenal hemorrhaged loads of players as a result of that because players who at Arsenal were like mid-tier players thought, okay, I'm going to earn like 19 grand a year here. If I go to Notts County, I'll be one of the three best players and I'll get 25 or 30. So Mm. um, that was bad for Arsenal, but it was very good for the league. It created a lot of competitiveness. They they removed this rule um, so that now it's like a a percentage of turnover um, or something. And that's massively favoured like Arsenal, Man City, um, Chelsea, the, t- the the clubs who really committed to throwing money at it, and that that's really the route that the FA have gone down now, and and it's 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 a real shame because Donny Bells, for example, have gone down a couple of leagues. Sunderland, um, you know, pound for pound, Sunderland put, you know, more than probably any other men's team put into their women's team, relatively speaking. They yeah. and Notts County, they really cared about it and they didn't necessarily have the money but they went for it but now you know and, and you've got Liverpool at the moment who are in a really weird position where they've they've not quite pulled the plug but they've decided to spend less on it because they're looking at Arsenal Man City and Chelsea and they're going that's the kind of money we've got to spend probably just to finish fourth or fifth and they're just thinking there's no point this is an arms race we can't win so a lot of those clubs Sunderland started to do it as well. They started to just think, well, we can't compete. So what's the point in throwing kind of throwing our money at it? So um, and, and Manchester United have come into this now. And in a couple of years, you'll see Manchester United come into this um, this this group of teams with Arsenal, Chelsea and Man City. And it will look a bit like the Premier League, but mm. um, they've, they've decided to build slowly. But again, for them spending a couple of million quid on their women's team is it, it will make a big difference in the women's game it will make no difference to them whatsoever so um yeah it's uh, that's very much and you've got west ham have come in southampton want to come in and you know i think the fa are looking at it in terms of promoting the game and looking at who's more likely to bring in the money which the women's game needs who's going to bring the eyeballs which the women's game needs so it, it is tempting and it is kind of kind of true just to say the fa are chasing the money but 
in the women's game, there, there are actually quite good reasons to chase the money. Yeah. So, I mean, if people listening to this are interested in finding out more about Arsenal women or attending games or, mm. you know, getting involved with being a, a, an Arsenal women's supporter on an active basis, mm. how, do they, how do they go about that? Where do they play the games? Can you get a season ticket? Yeah. What's, what way does it work? Yes, you can. So um, I've, I've actually written about this on Ask Blog News over the summer. So mm. there is um, a beginner's guide to Arsenal women. Um, but they play at Meadow Park, which is Boreham Woods um, ground. Um, and the piece uh, will, will give you kind of directions um, to there. It's about so if you book online, it's six pounds for adults and three pounds for kids. But if you want to turn up and pay on the turnstile, which you can do for every single game without exception, um, that goes up to a tenner for adults and a fiver for kids. Um, you can become a member um, as well, which um, gives you a season ticket. And it also gives you, for example, they do open training sessions. Um, sometimes they do members events. They do members prizes and things like that. Um, and I think that's about, it's usually about 65 quid at the beginning of the season. But I think if you buy it halfway through the the price comes down so you can be a member um and a season ticket holder um and honestly the 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 crowd that they look for the most that they aim things at the most quite rightly is um is young young girls um because it's kind of about inspiring young girls to play yeah and so if you've got I, i'd say children i don't have to be girls but um i'd say particularly if you've got daughters um it's a great place to bring them to and absolutely without exception the players go and spend time um particularly with the young supporters after the game if you sit near the tunnel like absolutely without exception it's a big big part of what they do they go and engage with the young supporters they'll pose for every selfie sign every autograph um they're very very big on that so i'd say if you've got kids um it's it's a cheap day out um good value and um yeah, and, and and you'll definitely get a smile uh, from the kids if you bring them there. Brilliant. Okay, well, check out Tim's stuff on Arsenal Women on Ars Blog News. And, of course, there is a section on the official Arsenal website uh, which covers the, the women's team, gives you the results, gives you the fixtures. So if you fancy going to a game, you can see uh, what's on and when. So, uh, look, thanks for that, Tim. I just want to talk to you very quickly before we go about uh, Alex Iwobi. You've written a column mm. about him this week uh, for Ars Blog, for your, uh, for your weekly column. One of the players, I think, who appears to be thriving, perhaps not quite the right word yet, because we're still so uh, uh, new into this season and new in the Unai Emery era. But he does look like somebody who is enjoying his football more this season than he did last season. I guess that's normal because the team was in such a, a weird state, uh, you know, particularly mm. the away form and everything else. But he's not alone, but just the idea of, of Alex Iwobi coming good as an academy boy who's been at the club since eight or nine years mm. of age. You know, he, he, he was a breath of fresh air. He was really exciting. He sort of plateaued, struggled a bit, but now appears to be back on the right track, and it's good to see. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And I think, uh, and I say this in the column, I, I don't think he's a changed player. I think he's doing all the things that he's kind of always mm. done. It's just what he does suits Emery's style of attacking a lot more where Emery doesn't really play with wingers um but he, he plays with guys in the in the in the half spaces you know is is the kind of uh, word du jour um <laughs> and and that suits him so that is his role and I think when you were looking at him last season and he was playing in this like 
budge of a midfield um, alongside like Wilshire and Xhaka and, and Ramsey and, and Ozil. And you think, you know, you, you put those players together and you think, well, what on earth is his role there? Because we know what Ramsey does. We know what Wilshire was in theory meant to do, but I, I don't think he could do it anymore. We know what Xhaka does. We know what Ozil does. And, and it's... I, I found it really easy to see last season. I would watch him and I'd think, I, I don't know what he's supposed to be doing. I don't know what his role is. Is he meant to be an eight? Is he meant to be a 10? Is he meant to be a left winger? Is he meant to be a right? Like what? Mm. And is he meant to dribble the ball? Is he meant to pass it? Like what's he meant to do? Whereas this year, I think it's just so much clearer um, for him. It's yeah, you're kind of playing off that left side, but you know, we don't want you right out there. We want you in that kind of half space. And, uh, the, the really good thing about that role for him is it doesn't demand, it doesn't demand the final ball. It doesn't demand a goal. It just demands, it's almost like the, the Thomas Rosicki kind of role yeah. in terms of Rosicki wasn't a big goal scorer. He wasn't a big provider. It was just keep the game moving, keep the ball moving, keep your head up, move it around. And, and that suits him much more. And I, I'm thrilled for him because, um, I, I loved him when he he's, he's the sort of player I really like. Basically, I, lo, I love um, I love a dribbler, um, <laughs> and 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 I think he he seems he comes across to me as a really nice, down to earth kind of guy, um, as well. And and look, it's always great when someone who's you know comes in at eight years old um, makes it in the team. And I, I found the juxtaposition last season really weird and quite interesting. How usually academy players get get a bit of a break from the fans but yeah. I don't think he did and then there was Wilshire, who um you know was the kind of darling of the terraces and, and I understand why but um who really wasn't performing um who, who really looked like he'd, he'd just unfortunately sadly lost his game and the kind of difference in treatment between the two I couldn't always understand um but I, I'm absolutely delighted for him and I and I think uh I, I think basically at all times one of him or Mikatarian should be in the starting eleven. Right. Well I you know it's hard to argue considering the impact that, that he's had and you know if you're looking to the future you know, it'd be great to get Iwobi into the team uh, more regularly. I think the one concern I might just have is that he, he doesn't tend to last 90 minutes very often. Is that maybe the next step for him? Maybe, but I, actually, I, th I think that's an area he's really improved um, this season. Well, I mean, in he's, terms he's bigger of... and stronger, isn't he? He's certainly physically much more... Um, robust and and much yeah. i mean i think one of his one of his strengths one of the the things that people don't talk about as a positive in his game is his ability to back in to the attacker yeah. and shield the ball hold it up and then lay it off i think that's that's a really important part of his game and being bigger and stronger more more um physically developed i think is is going to help him in that regard yeah, hugely. One of the things he's always been really useful for is he can wriggle out of um, those tight spaces. I, I, I seem to remember Tayo being on this podcast about a year ago and uh, kind of uh, um, really, really kind of... the virtues uh, of his... Um, of his, his big African backside, I think, <laughs> yeah. was, was the phrase he used, um, which, which he does use to fantastic effect. And yeah, absolutely. I think his stamina levels look like they've gone up, whether that's a result of what Arsenal are doing fitness-wise or whether it's just because he's 22 now and he's developing. It's, it's probably a bit of both, to be honest. But um, but yeah, definitely, he, he looks... Um, he, he looks like... 
he's he's lost weight in the right places and gained muscle in the right places mm. um if that if that makes sense and sound too homoerotic um although eh, maybe it should um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah absolutely F- physically i think that that's another reason so where when i said i don't think he's a different style of player maybe he's a different shape of player now yeah well, look, uh, hopefully that improvement and development continues throughout this season uh, because he's not the only one. There are others. We don't really have time to go into it and we can maybe examine it in more detail a bit later in the season. But I, I do think there are others as well who are who are benefiting while perhaps some of the spotlight is on the likes of Ozil and Ramsey. Where do they fit? We can see other players who are taking steps forward. But uh, one for another day. We'll leave it there, Tim. As ever, thanks a million. My pleasure. You know where to find Tim. He's on Twitter at Stilberto, at Stilberto. Read his column every Thursday on Ars blog. And if you're interested in Arsenal women, check out the Arsenal women section on Ars blog News, which is, of course, at arsblog.news. Right, because it's the interlull, there's not a great deal else we can talk about, not a great deal more waffle. Just as ever, want to thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, I appreciate all the feedback we get by email, by tweet, by Facebook, and everything else. So thanks a million as ever. James and I will be here on either Monday or Sunday. I don't know yet. A lot of people have said they really dig the Sunday evening Arscast Extra um, it is a bit temporary. That's the only thing because James has got a, a schedule that doesn't lend itself to Monday mornings at the moment, but it will probably revert to Monday mornings. But I don't know when we're recording this weekend. It could be uh, Sunday evening. It may well be Monday morning. I will let you know. Keep an eye on the Twitter at Arsblog and at Gunnerblog, and uh, we'll tell you when to get your questions in. So join us for that whenever it is. I'll catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Well, I tell you, this new Tottenham Stadium of ours that we're building is going to be absolutely world-class. World, world, world-class. Right. I've heard that the seats at this stadium are going to be closer to the pitch than any other stadium in the entire world of football. You're only ever going to be like 3.26678.0 meters away from the action whereas at the Emirates you're like 15 yards away. Yeah well you know that's good and all but the thing is that the Emirates is you know open and built like you can actually play football matches there. But the new white art lane is going to be all glass right above the stand so the sound of all the Tottenham fans singing their hearts out will reverberate down to the pitch 
and absolutely terrify the opposition. That's a nice theory and everything, but we got no proof of that, do we? Because, uh, it ain't built yet. The grass on the pitch at the new White Hart Lane is going to be super organic, meaning that the ball will travel much more easily over the surface or slick intercon... intercon... intercontinental... inter... pan-European passing will be spot on. I have to say, I would be also very interested to see how you play your passing football on that pitch, you know, with all the uh, tractors and cranes and coked up contractors. So I heard at premium level they're going to have 47 different kinds of Stilton. No other Premier League team has got more choice of cheese. On the other hand, though, every other Premier League team has got the choice of playing their own games at, you know, home, because they've, like, got a stadium that works. Tell you what, though, I did hear, and I've got to give them credit for this, they've created a room specifically for people if they need somewhere that's, like, completely quiet, you know, sensory overload and all that, they can go here, and there's no way they'll be disturbed, it's going to be completely and utterly empty. Ah, that is very interesting, what's it called? Trophy room, mate. Ha, bloody ha. (coughs) What? Never mind, mate. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 